The NBA Finals kick off this Thursday, and TheRinger.com is your place to go. Make sure to check out all of our basketball coverage this week, including the Kyrie Irving feature we just published. Writer John Gonzalez takes a look into Kyrie Irving's off-the-court brand, his popular sneakers, and out-there theories on alien life in his latest piece, Kyrie Irving, While the World is Flat Indeed. You can now read that on TheRinger.com. Welcome to GM Street. I'm Tate Frazier. And on the line, Mike Lombardi. Lombardi, how are you doing, man? I am good, Tate. How are you? Happy Memorial Weekend. You all ready? Yeah. Have a good time? Yeah, it's been a beautiful weekend. I went up to Napa Valley for the first time. Check that out. Uh, A little different than the NFL, I'd say. But I drank some wine. Uh, You ain't in North North Carolina when you're in Napa Valley. Yeah, I've seen a lot of farms in my life, but they were not that pretty. So it was was good to see. Good to see a different world of agriculture out there. It's a higher class, but uh, it, was, it was a nice time. Oh, that's awesome. You can't beat that. But we had training camp when I was at the Raiders. We were in uh, the, the heart of Napa Valley, and we ate every day at the Marriott right there, and everybody mm. else was having good meals. And no one could watch us practice. That was even the better thing. Wow. That sounds like a yeah. nice lifestyle. Maybe that's why uh, Al Davis had figured it out. He got his french fries. He got his wine. That's, that's where he got the fries. No wine. No wine. Diet <laughs> Pepsi. That's where he got the fries and the Diet Pepsi right there. We could have eaten anywhere. I mean, the French Laundry was literally like five miles away, but we were going to sit there and eat the Marriott food, which all worked out. It's mm. all good. Yeah, that's a nice life. Uh, today on the show, though, we're going to talk about not Al Davis, unfortunately, for those that are really trying to tune in to hear, hear more stories from Mike Lombardi. This week, we're going to talk about uh, one of the r- best rivalries, probably the best modern rivalry since at least 2000, and that is the rivalry between the Baltimore Ravens and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, it's obviously not the most storied rivalry because the Baltimore Ravens are a little bit of a new franchise coming in in 1999. But they won a Super Bowl early. You got Ray Lewis. You got Heinz Ward. When you think of this rivalry just in general, Lombardi, is there is there something that really comes to mind and sticks out to you? You know, I think it's defense. I think certainly both teams have built their reputation on defense. And both teams play outdoors with bad weather. Defense has to win. And I think when you look at the two franchises, they find a way. They have found ways to win, make it to the playoffs. I mean, Ben Roethlisberger is a rookie quarterback, goes there. Tommy Maddox comes off mm. the bench and plays well and then you look at Baltimore with Joe Flacco drafted and how they were able to win a Super Bowl with Trent Dilfer so I think they've managed the quarterback position up until Big Ben became sensational but yet their defense has always been the signature and I think that's the story here with both these teams as they transition from being a dominant defense because neither of them are dominating on defense right now yep as they adapt to the modern time, which is you've got to be able to win on the road with offense all most of the time, and I think that's really where the story lies. And Baltimore has yet to get their offense straightened out. Pittsburgh has to a degree, but we might be going through a change with Pittsburgh if Big Ben decides he's going to quit next year. Well, before we get into the uh, the Big Ben storyline and, and, and what he's looking forward for the future, he's apparently only committed for just this season is what he's saying, but that's what a lot of guys say in the NFL. Let's start with the Baltimore Ravens, and let's, talk, let's start with what the Ravens have been up to these days. Obviously, when you think of Baltimore, you know most people jump to the Super Bowl when the lights went out, when it was the Harbaugh Bowl, when both the brothers went head-to-head and the Ravens came out. John Harbaugh gets the Super Bowl. The Ravens and Joe Flacco, uh, Joe Flacco finally decides that he is an elite quarterback after all 
But now we're in 2017. We're four years removed from that Super Bowl with the Ravens. And it's kind of in this position where what's Ozzie Newsom going to do with this team? Is John Harbaugh a part of the future? And, you know, is Joe Flacco really going to be a guy that continues to kind of teeter on, I'm going to be a, a top level quarterback, or is he going to stay in the middle of the pack? And when you're looking at this team and the Ravens in general, Lombardi, what, what's the really the big storyline for you this season that you really want to look into to see what they're going to do for the future? Well, I think let's start off with since the Super Bowl, Tate, they're 32 and 34, counting mm. playoff. Okay, so they're a below 500 team since then. Now, we don't think of them that way. We think they're still an elite team, but clearly they're trending downward. And I think that when you look at their roster, their roster has been going through a tremendous metamorphosis of change because they've lost some great players, whether it's Ed Reed, Ray Lewis. And I think what you're seeing is, is as they transition from being a defensive team, they've yet to get their offense handled. I mean, how many coordinators, Cam Cameron, you know, Jim Caldwell, mm-hmm. Mark Tressman, Marty Morningwig, and now you have Craig Roman. And I think this year, Roman would have been the coordinator, only that Joe Flacco put his foot down to John Harbaugh and said, hey, look, man, I really like Marty Morningwig. I want him on the staff. I want you to keep him. So now they've come up with the worst thing in football, which is co-coordinators. You know, one guy handles the run, one guy handles the pass. That's never that good. never really... That's never good. And so, you know, but they're trying to make Joe happy, and I think that's really what lies the fault. I think they've never been able to since uh, since they drafted Joe Flacco. Other than the one year with Gary Kubiak, they've really never been able to figure out what he does well and how he can man- how he can play well within the system. He's not a franchise quarterback and just roll out there and play with everybody. But when you look at what he did with Kubiak and how he was effective with him, I think that's when they're at their best. And, you know, look, they've played Pittsburgh 18 times in the last since Harbaugh's been there. They're 10 and 8 versus Pittsburgh. And six of those losses have come when they failed to score more than 20 points. Mm-hmm. So when they can generate points, they usually can beat Pittsburgh. The problem is they have a hard time generating points. And what you need to generate points in the NFL nowadays is an ability to throw the ball and have a passing game. And when you look at the wide receiving core of the Ravens, uh, it's hard to find a guy that's really a star and for someone to Joe Flacco to lean on. You know, you got Brashad Perriman, Mike Wallace, Michael Campanero. I mean, you know, I started throwing those names out and you're really kind of you're trying to find, you know, and salvage a guy that could be a fit for, for Joe Flacco. I mean, is there anything that they can do in this offseason to kind of upgrade that position and get him some weapons on the outside? Well, I think the number one thing they have to do is decide who they are. And I think when you look at their team, I think they're not, they have to be a play action pass team. That's where Flacco's at his best. And I think that's what Kubiak did for him. So really, the burden's going to fall on whether it's going to be Talaferro the back or is it going to be Terrence West the back. Mm-hmm. We know Danny Woodhead's going to be the role player within the offense. But I think what you have to do when you have Flacco is you've got to be able to throw the ball down the field. The year he went to the Super Bowl, he averaged 7.2 yards per attempt down the field. Yards yeah. per attempt is a critical number. Last year he was at 6-4. Okay, so whenever he's above 7, and he's only been above 7 three times in his career, they usually have great seasons. And I think partly that all becomes because they can't really run the ball. They have to be able to play action fake. Flacco is not a West Coast offense quarterback. He's just not a rhythm thrower. He is a drop back, play action pass, separate the defense, throw the ball down the field. And that's why they have to be able to run the football. And I think there lies the problem. Their offensive line has been in flux. I mean, last year they started a bunch of rookies. This year maybe they'll come back and play. The rookies will play better. Stanley and Lewis certainly have a chance to play better. I think this whole thing starts with their ability to run the football, something they've not been able to do effectively when they put the burden on Flacco. That just isn't going to work. 
And the Ravens, you know, when you think about that team in general and that offensive line, there are some young guys that have shown some flashes. Uh, James Hurst is a name that comes to mind. Uh, that, that is, of course you bring up the North Carolina guy. You love those guys. <laughs> of course, but, you know, you got to talk about some of those young guys, and it seems like that line could be groomed to do something uh, that could help Joe Flacco out. I want to flip it back to the actual coaching side of it. We mentioned Harbaugh and that relationship and him trying to appease Joe Flacco a little bit. Um John Harbaugh has obviously been there for quite some time. He is, you know, I think a lot of people, when they think of the Ravens, they think of John Harbaugh would be one of the first people they think of. Um, Is it coming to to its head there in Baltimore with Harbaugh? Do you think he's finally going to fill the hot seat this season? Or is it one of those things where he has a good, you know, 10, 11 win year and everyone gets back on the bandwagon and jumps on board with Harbaugh? I think that, you know, the expectations are going to be huge for him. And I think really, you know, when you're 32 and 34 over the last 144 games since the Super Bowl, you know, your teams are expecting you to win. And I think his best team that he had was a team that lost to us in New England 35-31 mm-hmm. in the trick play game. I think that team might have the next week would have clearly beaten Indianapolis and would have gone on. I don't know if they would have beat Seattle in the Super Bowl, but that was his best team. Since then, I think this year the pressure's on John. I think he knows the pressure's on him because the feeling around the building is is they have this expectations that they should compete for Super Bowls, but they've only had, you know, they've had two playoff games since they went to the Super Bowl. They've won one and lost one. And I think that's really where the pressure is going to be on John. And the pressure, more than anything, is on can John fix the offense? Can he fix, can the changes he's made with the offensive line coach, can the changes he's made with hiring Greg Roman, can those changes affect, and the changes he's made on his staff, can they help him? Can there, are they going to be able to run the ball? If Kenneth Dixon can run, if Talaferro can run, if West can be the running back, can this take some of the pressure off? Can Ben Watson come back and play? Remember last year they had no tight end to really play with. I mean, last year they struggled. Their tight ends got hurt. Max Williams was on IR. Ben Watson was on IR. So they had a lot of guys that were hurt. The key is going to be, can they get this thing turned around offensively? Because defensively, they're going through a change. I mean, they're still going to have T. Suggs, but he's not the same T. Suggs. Mm-hmm. They've got to get the corner situation. They draft Lattimore. I think this is a team really in transition, and when you're a team in transition, it's tough to have Super Bowl expectations. And when you're talking about that transition from Suggs to some of those other guys on defense, there's not really a face uh, beyond Suggs. I mean, obviously, there was Doomerville there last year, uh, Eric Weddle that came over in free agency. But those aren't guys that are really being built in. Because when you think of the Ravens, you kind of it got to a point where they're, they're drafting these guys, bringing them in, and they're, and they're becoming staples you know, in their own right. When you look at a guy like uh, a C.J. Mosley, who's been you know, a linebacker there that's sort of trying to grow. You know, He's only 24 years old, going on 25. But... I mean, I mean, is that someone that can be a face of, of that defense for the Ravens where they can sort of at least get some sort of identity on that side of the ball beyond Suggs? I think they've had a hard time passing the baton. You know, good teams typically can pass the baton from Ray Lewis to another generation. When I was at the 49ers, we had guys that came in in a draft class, Ronnie Lott, Eric Wright. They came in the same draft class, and they took the baton over from Jack Reynolds and built the organization so that when they left, there were still players that kind of executed the plan. And I don't see that with Baltimore. Baltimore has struggled, really, to, to fill some of the voids of their team. I mean, they're, they're mm-hmm. kind of like in between. They've tried to hit. Look, they signed two guys for their secondary, Eric Weddle and Tony Jefferson. Yep. I mean, they haven't drafted to the level – that everybody thinks they have. And I think that's been the hidden gnomer here is everybody expects them to have these great drafts. And last year, you know, they had a couple guys that Stanley played. Looks like he could be a good player. Tavon Young played. He could be a good player. Lewis, they were better last year in the draft. And maybe this year when they add the players they've added, they can be. 
But I think it's been hard to pass the baton because they haven't been as good as they needed to be on defense. They haven't been able to find that other rusher to go with Suggs. They signed Dumerville. Who's it going to be now? Is it going to be Tim Williams? Maybe. I think Tim Williams could be if he can stay if he can stay not healthy, but if he can stay out of trouble off the field, Tim Williams could be the guy. They pay Brandon money's a lot, Brandon Williams a lot of money. The other thing about the Ravens, it's interesting. They're 30th in the league in, right now in how much money they've spent on their players. Mm-hmm. So that tells you how good they think their team is. They have 88 players. They have a little bit more than $2 million worth of cap room. They expect this team to be really good. And I think when you move forward, I think that's what all the burden is going to fall on John Harbaugh. Can he get this team turned around? Are they going to be able to do it? Are they going to be able to play at a level where they can you know, start fast? Because if it starts to get rocky, and we've seen this with Baltimore, how many times have they fired have they fired uh, an offensive coordinator midseason, Cameron Cameron, mm-hmm. and then they fired last year, they fired Mark Tressman. So, you know, they start out in Cincinnati, they play Cleveland, they got Jacksonville, they got Pittsburgh. The first month of the season, they should be no worse than 2-2. Two and two. They should be 3-1. and one. And that can give them some momentum as they go forward. And we should mention that John Harbaugh did come out and say that uh, he supported the celebrations uh, in the end zone. So hopefully John Harbaugh is trying to have some fun this year and maybe that'll rub, rub off on his players. And, you know, the, the Ravens will be back where they want to be uh, at the top of that division. Um, the other team that's going to be battling for that spot that's always uh, always in the conversation, it seems like, is Mike Tomlin Steelers. Um when you look at the steel curtain and what they are in a modern sense, they have, you know, we talked about the defense being obviously the identity of these two franchises, but the Steelers really have embraced the offensive side, having, you know, Antonio Brown, uh, having Le'Veon Bell, and obviously having Big Ben back there and making plays, Martavis Bryant. There's just so many guys when you go down the list. When you look at the Steelers, what's sort of the expectation for their season? And if this is Big Ben's last year, you know, <laughs> the Steelers really need to go all in with uh, Le'Veon and those guys. I think the Steelers know it. I mean, look, the Steelers brought in three guys to Pittsburgh this year, quarterbacks. They brought in Patrick Mahomes, mm-hmm. they, br- they brought in Davis Webb, and they brought, and they brought in uh, Joshua Dobbs. They spent time with those three guys in private workouts and visits. So they kind of know Big Ben, even though he's due to make $17 million next year, he could opt out of his deal. They kind of have a sense that they're trying to get in a transition. And I think the great the quote that Mike Tomlin used, he said, Kevin Colbert and I spent special attention to the position over the last several years, if nothing else from a dry run perspective, to gain knowledge and the information necessary to make a good decision when we come to that fork in the road. And who's, and who's to say that we aren't there right now? Mm-hmm. To me, that's, that, that to me, Mike Tomlin knows that, Ben, whether it's health reasons, whether it's interest, whether it's love of the whatever it is, he knows the leash is short. And his defense has declined over the years because they've yet to find the replacement for those great rushers. I mean, when James Harrison's still your best rusher, and he was their best rusher last year, Jarvis Jones didn't pan out. Now, maybe T.J. Watt can pan out for them, but they've got to find a guy that can rush the passer around the corner. And at times last year, Bud Landry looked like he could be the guy. But Pittsburgh has to find that complementary pass rusher because they're going to score points offensively. They just have a hard time slowing people down without a great pass rush. And if it's Harrison, then it tells you it's not a great pass rush. It feels like James Harrison has been playing football for, you know... A hundred years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Since you were in diapers. Since you were in diapers. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And he shows these videos online about him clean and jerking weight. It's remarkable. But I think what Pittsburgh has done better than Baltimore is Pittsburgh's been able to figure out the offensive scheme. Mm -hmm. And Pittsburgh, over the same time with Baltimore, they're 43-27. and And they've had six playoff games in that time. I mean, so... 
and they've got more cap room. They're 14th in the league in cap room. Now, you take Roethlisberger away from them, and you know they're going to pick up 17, whatever they're going to pick up, even more cap room. I think Pittsburgh has yet to figure out defensively. I think that's been their complications because Tomlin wants to run a certain style of defense that he's familiar with. They got rid of the Dick LeBeau scheme, mm-hmm. and they're trying to replace it. And I think their transition has been better than Baltimore's. And I think that's the, that's the tale of both teams here. I think one team's transition's been better. I think Baltimore's been lagging behind because Baltimore, for, the, for everybody thinking they've drafted great, they really have not been able to figure out what pieces around Joe Flacco, offensively, scheme-wise, and player-wise, most benefits them. The Steelers, they know they know exactly what Big Ben needs. He needs big outside receivers. He needs vertical guys to stretch. And they got two of the best skill players in football, Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown. And when you look at Big Ben, so we just mentioned that he, he basically has come out and said, I never commit to anyone more than, than anyone more than within one year in a season. Basically, you know, I'm playing for 2017. I don't know what the future holds, but he still he signed a five year contract in 2015. He still has forty six million dollars outstanding that that the Steelers will owe him. So when you have all that, you know, in the back of your mind as a Steelers, as a franchise, I mean, is there a little bit of concern of like this is our one shot to get it with Big Ben and then we have to a lot to figure out in the future or? Or is it one of those things where we're just going to let this thing ride out and, and sort of see what happens and see how it plays out? Look, I think when you bring Mahomes in for – when you spend time with Mahomes, you spend time with Davis Webb, you spend time with Joshua Dobbs, they know the end is coming near. And I know he, he's owed money, but I think if you look at Ben, Ben had a huge decline from 15 to 16. A lot of it could be receivers. Mm-hmm. You know, Ben averaged 8-4 per yards per attempt. And, and this is important for Ben because Ben's one of the best move around the pocket, throw the ball down the field guys in the NFL. He doesn't run with it, and he takes a lot of hits. I mean, let's face it, he hasn't played 16 games in three years. He's not been able to stay on the field since 14 for all 16 games. So we know he gets hurt quite a bit. We know he takes a lot of punishment, even though his offensive line. I think the unsung hero of Pittsburgh has been Mike Munchak. I think Mike Munchak, their offensive line coach, does a marvelous job, and he's been able to develop a left tackle, He's been able to develop some offensive line, and they've done a better job of building it, plus the way they run the football. You know, everybody thinks Le'Veon Bell just stops in the hole. But when you watch the tape, they coach him on how to do that. I mean, they double-team the point to where Le'Veon can stop without penetration and then make the read. It's not just, oh, he does it on his own. It's the way they coach it. It's the way they play it. And it's really a well done. And I think Pittsburgh knows offensively that that's how they've got to win games because Pittsburgh's defense yet has, been, has not been able to turn it around. And you look, a lot of it is because they haven't been able to fix the draft. Last year they drafted all those corners. They didn't play as well. This year they, they drafted outside rusher because they lost, uh, they lost Darvish Jones, and they still don't have an outside rusher. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out with their defense. One guy I really do like on that defensive line that I think can develop is uh, Anthony Ciccolo, who was uh, out of Miami, Florida. And when he was coming out of college, I, I'm sure you remember this, when he was coming out of high school or trying to pick his college, it was down to the number one defensive in the country was Jadavion Clowney and Ciccolo was number two. And everybody you know, was, was fighting over those two guys. And I think Chantrell Henderson and Ciccolo both went to Miami. And uh, so he's one guy that I always see when he lines up on the Steelers where I'm like, maybe he'll, because he's still a young guy. I think he's like 24, 25 years old. So. He is a young guy. But see, the problem is with him is, is he can't go backwards. So he's a 34 linebacker that has to go forward. 
much like all the Pittsburgh linebackers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, where they, people, because of the way teams play and because of the adjustments that you have to make within your secondary, you need some guys that can go forward and backwards. And I think Chicolo gets on the field, he can do some things, but then he gets put in some liabilities. They've got to generate a pass rush, and I think they've done a better job. I think Jason Hargrove is one of the better defensive linemen on their team. I think with him, with Cam Hayward, I think Stephon Truitt really took a giant step. I think they took a giant step forward last year defensively. Their secondary just didn't play well. Artie Burns didn't come through. Russ Cockrell didn't really come through for them. They need those guys to come through. They'll get Sequez Golson back from IR. He was hurt all of last year. He's a third-round pick for them. they got a chance to get this defense turned around. The key is going to be, can it keep Big Ben healthy? Can they keep Le'Veon Bell healthy? And can they keep those receiving core healthy? Because those guys, when they lost Sammy Coates to the injury, and when they lost, they didn't have Martavius Bennett, when they lost those guys, all of a sudden the burden started to fall on some other guys who weren't able to do it as much. But I like Pittsburgh. To me, if there's a team in the in the AFC that can challenge the paper tiger right now, which are the New England Patriots, because everybody's a paper tiger, Tate. Right yeah. now, everybody's, <laughs> you know, they're all paper tigers. On paper, it looks like New England has the best team. I think Pittsburgh has a chance to be the second best team. I think Oakland's got to prove they're better on defense. I think Kansas City's got question marks. I don't know where Denver could go, but yeah. I think Pittsburgh has the best chance. And I just will point this out for, for a lot of people. Like Todd Haley, do you think he's getting enough credit for what he's been able to do as far as developing this receiving core and, and this offense in general under Big Ben? Because it, I mean, it feels like every single year, like last year was Eli Rogers and then Martavis Bryant before that. Sammy Coates is another thing that pops up. It just feels like every single year the, the Pittsburgh Steelers keep turning out these guys and turning them into big-time receivers that make plays in the slot or where, wherever it may be. I mean, does Todd Haley deserve some credit for, for what he's been able to do with his offense? Just I, I think the receiver coach their receiver coach Richard Williams said, and Pittsburgh has done a good job of selecting receivers and developing receivers. I mean, Kobe Hamilton was on Cincinnati's practice squad. He got mm-hmm. cut off practice squads. He came in and made plays for us. And then when you when you look at Eli Rogers, you know, not drafted out of Louisville, came in the slot, made some plays. You know, they've done a good job with their skill players. They really have done a good job. They've done a good job defining the roles for the skill players too. So I think that helps them. But to me, this is going to come down to: can they get that pass rusher? Can they get that one guy to come off the corner? And can they get enough help with their secondary in terms of coverage when they have to? When it becomes a man-to-man game, because all games become man-to-man, can they play man-to-man and win? And if their rush is going to be good enough, and I think that's the question: Are they better than Baltimore? I think they are right now. And we'll get to see these two teams uh, go head-to-head in uh, Week Four this season. It's per- both these teams have you know pretty favorable starts uh, when you just go down and look at the schedule. I mean, obviously the Steelers open the season against the Cleveland Browns, and they have the Vikings, who are obviously a little beat up with uh, you know their their whole situation you know, at the quarterback position and whether Sam Bradford can hold up. Then they have at Chicago, and then they play at Baltimore. So, and then you know we already mentioned before the uh, the Ravens what they open up with. So we could even see a chance where both those teams are you know maybe even three and zero heading into that to that first meeting of the season. Um, on October first, so it could it could be a fun uh, fun rendition of the rivalry this season. Yeah, I, I, and I think the key is going to be is Baltimore can't panic. I mean, Baltimore's got to play at sixteen games. I mean, it's going to be it's not going to be an easy thing for Baltimore because the pressure is always going to be on John because it feels like if John doesn't turn it around this year, whereas Mike Tomlin, you know, everybody thinks well he hasn't been to a Super Bowl in, in so long. Maybe it's going to maybe he's under pressure. I think that clearly the Steelers like what they have, they like the direction, and as they keep changing the team, I think they're going to like what they do. And I think that's that's they got their coach. They're not changing their coach, and I think Baltimore. The pressure of that comes on them a little bit. 
And just as just a little bit of a sidebar, but with Mike Tomlin, I mean, is there a more of a seamless transition from the Bill Cowher, obviously Jerome Bettis, that whole Super Bowl team, and then Mike Tomlin comes in, takes over, wins his own Super Bowl? I mean, that that transition of power and how Mike Tomlin has done so well, because Mike Tomlin came in that class of like Leslie Leslie Frazier hires, like that whole class of coaches that came in, and he's just been, you know, it's almost like it's his program it's his franchise it, you know it feels like he just completely came right in there and everyone knew Mike Tom was the guy I mean does he deserve you know all the credit in the world for being able to make that trend I mean people don't even mention Bill Cowher a lot they, a lot of people think that he won that first Super Bowl uh, when, when they first got there with uh, Jerome Bettis you know I think it's the Steelers Tate I think when you look at the Steelers I think they understood they define roles for everybody in the organization they're patient they let people grow I mean they've had bad drafts they didn't fire their personnel director they've had bad mm-hmm. season they didn't fire their coach you know, they have patience. They understand the roles they put people in. When they want to make changes, they make them. I mean, they fire Bruce Arians to bring in Todd Haley. They yeah. felt like that would be a better chance to help their run game. Uh, I, I think that was, I don't think that was a move that I would have done over again. But I think the Steelers understand how to lay down a sustainable organization. And I think that's why they're successful. And I think Baltimore, to a degree, understands that really well. I think Baltimore is just right now impatient in the sense that they're 32 and 34 since their Super Bowl, and they're desperate to turn this thing around. They, they feel the urge, not because of the age of their team, they feel the urge because they expect so much to win. I think their owner, Steve Ashadi, I think he wants, to, you know, obviously he thinks he can win a Super Bowl every year or else his payroll wouldn't be where it is. Mm-hmm. When you think of the- this rivalry in general, obviously, it's it's you know it's a new rivalry. It's been the twenty. It's a twenty first century rivalry. I just want to ask you, you know, because you have more perspective on this, looking back in the history of it all. Did when did you expect when the Ravens became a franchise in Baltimore that they would you know clash so much with the Pittsburgh Steelers? Or did, it, did it sort of you know over the years they had such a similar identity that they became you know hated rivalries? Because you know Heinz Ward and Ray Lewis are the two guys that really define on both sides of this rivalry. But you know before the Cleveland Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers hated each other, you know the Baltimore right. Colts were their, were their own separate thing. I I just feel like. The this is such a, a, a weird thing where it feels like it's some old rivalry, but really it's it's really new in the NFL and it's still growing and changing with the years. Yeah, and I think the thing I like about it the most, and it is, and I think what I like about it the most is the fact that each team, you know, when you're in a division, and this happens a lot, is when you play another team that you have to beat to get through the division, it raises your level of how you want to play. Mm-hmm. It raises your level of how you build your team. You know you have to get through Pittsburgh, you're going to have to have a great defense. You know to win in Pittsburgh, you need this. Or you know to win in Baltimore, you need to do this. It's one of the hardest things to do in sports is to measure your team against the team you have to go through. It doesn't, you know, if you're in the NBA and you're in the East and you have to get through LeBron to get to the finals, you've got to build a team that can really match up to him. This is a big Al Davis thing. And I think Baltimore and the and Pittsburgh understand this and how they build their teams to compete with one another. And Cincinnati, slowly but surely, kind of like Yurtle the Turtle, they kind of came along and built their team to match all these other three other three teams in the in the North. Mm-hmm. You know, and and they've been able to do it. So I, I think that's the lesson to learn there, and that's what makes the rivalry so good. Is because when you make moves to build your team, I think it hasn't happened in the East. Nobody's built an organization to take down the Patriots. Yeah, right. We're seeing a little bit more of that in the West. I mean, the Raiders coming back. But there hasn't been a transcending team in the West to say, we better build our team to beat them. 
You know, and I think that's what happens in the South. Nobody's building their team to beat anybody in the South because of South teams. But when you get teams that are good, like in the NFC South where Atlanta, now you've got to build your team so Tampa becomes better. And then New Orleans, you know, they win. You've got to build. I think that's what really separates it, and that's what makes it such a rivalry is when you build your team to beat the number one competitor and you match it, then you get a rivalry. Yeah, the only time I can recall that even being a question in the AFC East was when the Jets tried to go the opposite of the Patriots and try to stack it up on defense and see what happens. But that was with a bunch of former Ravens and Rex Ryan. So yeah. it was sort yeah, of exactly. in the similar vein. Um, I just want to ask you, if there is there a moment in that rivalry that's like your favorite? Is, is there a defining moment in this rivalry? Because for me, it's definitely like Bart Scott versus Heinz Ward in 2007. That, that was when... Uh, Bart Scott allegedly uh, threatened <laughs> threatened Heinz Ward's life on the field, which is, uh, you know, if, you, if you've heard Bart Scott talk trash, then there's no telling what he actually said to Heinz Ward. But that's one of my favorite moments when I think of this rivalry. Is there anything that stands out to you? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Every one of these games to me is like I don't want to play either Pittsburgh or Baltimore during the regular season mm-hmm. after you've played them. Like I don't want – like when Pittsburgh plays a team the next week, that's when you want to play them. Like Pittsburgh's – this game takes so much out of both teams, and Baltimore's the same kind of way. They're so physical that when you play them, you want to play them after they played somebody as physical. You want to play them after they played Pittsburgh. So, you know, for me, it's always been like, look at the schedule. We play Pittsburgh after they play, you know, may say they play uh, Dallas or Houston or one of those. Okay, no, but if they play Baltimore the next week, that's perfect for you because you get them when they're really kind of physically beaten up. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the toll. It's like taking a boxer who just went 15 rounds, and all of a sudden – you get, he's going to fight another fight within three or four days. That's what makes it so good. Yeah, there was. A, it was funny. Like when Steve Smith got in that game, he was like, a, you know, this is the first time in the NFL that he had felt some sort of. It was like a different atmosphere in the building when they were right. able to go head to head against the, uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers in, in that rivalry game. So that's always uh, interesting to check. I always think about Terrell Suggs. He has all those T-shirts with all those like funny uh, Steelers things, like of him smashing Steelers players and like uh, all those little cartoon and characters of of making fun of the Steelers. It's always it's just a fun rivalry it's good to have that in the nfl it's uh no it, it's really and it's good to have in the league because it, it built like i said earlier build your team it really works out well well um that's that's all we have on the pittsburgh Steelers and the baltimore ravens i think this will be a fun year i'm hoping both franchises can kind of get back in order and get back in line and uh maybe make a chase at at the new england patriots i think tom brady wants them to be good i think bill belichick they they enjoy it when they're good right it makes it a little, a little right. bit more fun. And, and let's just just for the sake of conversation here baltimore's over the the, the line is nine and pittsburgh's ten and a half mm. yeah so that makes I mean, sense, right? That's yeah, kind of where what's where I think it is. Yeah, feels like Vegas is really on top of that because I I I feel like they're two ten win teams. Flacco needs to have the year where everyone can finally say Joe Flacco is finally an elite quarterback. My my favorite thing, the only thing that I want to happen at the end of this whole run with this this whole lineage of of players on both sides, I want James Harrison and Terrell Suggs to like arm wrestle each other to see who's the best because they're yeah, they're, they're too so, physically and, dominant. How pissed do you think Baltimore is for not not having? Uh, they had Harrison. Oh, you know, yeah. Harrison was cut like fifteen times from Balt from Pittsburgh, and Baltimore had him on their practice squad and couldn't get him on their team. You imagine Harrison playing next to the Suggs and all those guys oh. in his prime. My lord, that would. It's it's amazing, James Harrison. For people that, that want to read uh, just like some sort of inspiring story of someone that persevered through a bunch of crap. Uh, James Harrison is a guy really, really can can latch on to because he he went through a lot and he's still back with the Steelers and still wrecking uh, offenses all over the NFL. Um, Lombardi, should we get in our word on the street this week? 
There we got it. Yeah, let's go. We got we we're, we're we're a week behind. We missed last week. We got to get it caught up. Yeah, that's right. This has been uh, quite some time. We're sorry to the listeners that we took the week off, but Lombardi needed a nice little vacation. It was well earned and well deserved. Uh, <laughs> Lombardi's going to become a grandfather, so he's got to make sure he's got everything in order. That's the problem. Man. Absolutely, that's good news. Just adding to the Lombardi name, adding to the family. That's that's big for the Lombardi family. Uh, that's yep. great. Good news. Well, first story up is a guy that we all know, uh, defensive back Mo Claiborne says that he expects to be the number one corner when healthy in football. We've obviously <laughs> seen Mo Claiborne not be the number one corner with the Cowboys. Uh, do you believe him? Do you think this is possible, Lombardi? You know, I, I think if they play press, I think he's a better press player than he is an off player. I think can he play with durability? I always felt like Mo Claiborne played corner like a wide receiver plays corner. Mm-hmm. I just didn't think he was a physical enough player coming out of college. I thought he played corner like a wide receiver. I hope that's changed because, look, I think the Jets, I think people are sleeping on the Jets. I think the Jets got a chance to be a good team if they get any play out of their secondary because those three guys up front, Richardson's in his contract here. He's going to be a bitch to block. Leonard Williams is already a problem to block, and then Muhammad can be a problem. So, I think what you got three guys up front that could be really tough to handle. If they get any play out of their secondary, I think they got a chance. I mean, the Jets are one of those teams that are going to sneak up on people because nobody thinks they're any good. And I think they're better than what, what I think they're better than what has happened. I think a lot of things were going on in their locker room. I think there was a there was a toxic relationship there. I think if they get any play out of the quarterback position and any play out of their secondary, I think they got a chance to win more than five games, which Vegas doesn't think they are. Uh, another guy that a lot of people were sort of sleeping on after a down year last year, Andy Dalton. Uh, he's been working with a quarterback guru, which we, we've we've sort of joked Everybody's about. Everybody's <laughs> a quarterback guru. I mean, I could probably go Ocean City, go down the corner, go right here. There's probably two guys sitting on the corner that are quarterback gurus. I mean, it's remarkable. I like, who is he working with? Like, I don't understand this whole guru thing. It's like Don Henley's song, you, you, you know, the, the, the uh, expert witness. I mean, like, who is this? Like, the guru for Cincinnati is somebody who can, who can help their offense and handle their offense and get Dalton to play better. And, I mean, Dalton has to play better within the framework of their offense. Like, it isn't so much his mechanics as much as it is his decision-making. And then when he gets to the red zone, like, hey, Andy, don't throw the ball to somebody else when you get in the red zone. Let's kick field goals. How about that? Let's try that. Is that a guru? Does that make me a guru, Tate? I think I'd hire you. All you need is a broom and, like, a name of a training facility that's sort of, like, uh, aggressive, like, DQB something Lombardi facility and then you, you got like these guys that are quarterback <laughs> gurus like it's remarkable to me like I, they've never been in a room they've never been with bill wall i mean like i get if a guy's coached in the league and he's helping a player out but like I, some of these gurus i mean i guess everybody's a guru i don't know i don't know i'm sure i'm gonna go to the 34th street playground after this and, and i'll find two gurus down there all I know is John Skelton's going to be upset with you with you calling him out uh, if he's doing it. I, I even, love John Skelton. I, I watch even... <laughs> every college game, Tate. I watched every college game of John Skelton. I saw John Skelton play. He went to Fordham. My son was working on the Fordham coaching staff. I was at more. I've been to more Fordham games than. Anybody who listens to this podcast, I promise you, I've watched John Skelton live and in person more than I more than ever. And if he's a guru, God bless him. Yeah, and and for anyone that can't tell, I just love bringing up John Skelton because there's no one that reacts to John Skelton quite like Mike Lombardi. It just makes me too happy. <laughs> uh, another guy that's up, Gary Barnage, tight end for the Cleveland Browns. Well, right now he's an unemployed tight end. He is trying to find a new home in the NFL. He he's sort of implying that he's being blackballed from the lead, not not getting shots. Uh, not getting looks from teams. Um, is this something of real concern? Do you think Gary Barnage deserves a shot? And is it is it possibly because he's just not very good, Lombardi? 
No, he's a good player. We signed him. I was in Cleveland. We signed him. He's been a good player. Uh, I think the problem is it's, it's supply and demand. You know, look, look, Tate, everybody thinks they're going to the Super Bowl. Like, everybody has 90 players on the roster. Nobody wants to spend a nickel more than the minimum. And I'm sure that, like Colin Kaepernick, now the word comes out he's not going to sign with Seattle. Well, you know, nobody's paying more than minimum right now. Mm-hmm. So unless you're willing to take a minimum contract, why would you why would you go there? So nobody's paying minimum, and I, I think Barnage probably wants more than a minimum. But I think Barnage, I mean, if Barnage is patient and just sits and waits, he can catch the ball. He's not a great blocker, but he can do some things in the passing game that can help help an offense. And I think certainly, you know, he can. He's going to be on a team. I think right now people just look at their roster and they want to try to. This is a big Bill Parcells thing. They're called progress stoppers. If you sign mm-hmm. a veteran guy and you have a young player that you kind of like to develop, okay? And then if you sign that veteran, that veteran becomes a progress stopper. He stops all progress from that young player being able to see if he can be a good player. And I think that's where teams get mostly concerned about. So I think that's the only thing holding up Barnage. I don't think there's nothing to do with black ball. Because like I've said many times, if you can play football well, and no matter the severity of what happened, I think nobody's going to blackball you. Because if you can get on the field, you can get on the field. Just quick note on the Cleveland Browns while we're up there. Brock Osweiler has been a pleasant surprise uh, in Browns camp. I love it. Are, are you happy? I, well, wait a minute. Uh, wait a minute. Stop. Stop <laughs> now. Okay. Brock Osweiler has been a pleasant surprise. And I've read that, that Kaiser, there's no one going to keep Kaiser from being the star. Are they going to have three starting quarterbacks? I hope so. Because Cody Kessler's having a good camp, too. I, s- I say know, we like, just line them up in the backfield. We'll just do, like, you know, instead of having two running backs, we'll just have three quarterbacks back there. They'll decide who throws the ball every single time, and we'll see who's the best. We'll figure it out on the field. That's what matters. You know, when we were at the when we were at the Raiders, we used to have this thing called All Alameda, which meant if you played good in these OTA days and you looked like you were going to be a great player, you could be All Alameda. But you know what happens to most of those All Alameda guys? Mm. They never made it to the regular <laughs> season. <laughs> you know, like our All Alameda team never could make it to the regular season. And most of those guys, you know, we love this guy because he was there. But when the if this is football, it's a contact sport as much as we don't want to make it. So when the pads go on, if you don't play well, you're not going to make a team. So I would be real reluctant if I'm a fan reading about how great players look now, I would be real reluctant to say that's true. Yeah, this is unfortunately not a seven. Or else they're going to be on the Al- We'll make the All Alameda team. Yeah, let's do it. We'll start our own seven on seven league. We'll get Ice Cube right, to buy in on that. We, we'll we have Kaiser. We have Brock Osweiler, who had the greatest Twitter tw- uh, quote I saw the other day. Is all he told everybody just look at the tape, and you can see why he's a great player. <laughs> yes, I, I must be tape. going to the wrong blockbuster. I must be going to the wrong blockbuster. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to keep rewinding the tape to see if I missed anything, and just you know. Going back through, trying to comb through it, see if I can find some good stuff. Because I believe in you, Brock. I want you to do well. I like I like yeah. six, seven quarterbacks. We'll see what happens. Uh, one of our favorite battles in training camp is the kicking battle down in Tampa Bay. They they drafted Roberto Aguayo last year from Florida State. He had a really bad uh, season. He was twenty two of thirty one. You're being kind. Yeah, that's being, being kind. kind. And then they brought in Nick Folk uh, to add some competition. And then it came out. Dirk Cutter said that it, you know it's been a lot of tension in the in the kicking room. So is this the first time that a kicking battle was really going to be the most dramatic thing on Hard Knocks this season? Because I'm excited if uh, so. It'll be hilarious, right? We get to watch it. I still think Hard Knocks missed a great opportunity by just putting a camera in the Giants wide receiver room and watch Brandon Marshall and Odell Beckham go at it, especially oh. since Beckham, uh, you know, now that he's the highest paid guy on Nike. Uh, I, I think, look, they need to put pressure on Aguayo. they got to make sure he can handle it. But the reality of it is, is you know, and all the pressure you put on him in practice it doesn't translate oftentimes until the games, and I think those are what's really going to matter. And you and I both know preseason games, there's no pressure on those kicks. Yep. 
you know. So you're making a decision, and the problem with with Nick Falk is when you if he makes your team, you're committing to him for the whole season because mm-hmm. if he's on your opening day roster the Saturday before the opening game, you guarantee him that salary for the year. So you can't really to me this would be a better competition with a guy who wasn't a vested veteran and uh, and Roberto because then he, then whoever made it. You could go back and forth if you wanted to, but once you go with the veteran guy, you're stuck with him. Yeah, that's never good. Uh, last thing that we have coming up, uh, the big quarterback in Oakland that everyone's talking about, obviously Derek Carr went out last year. He's coming back. A lot of people are talking about his deal, his contract. We've seen a lot of guys hold out. Um, he pretty much came out and said that he's not going to be doing that whole runaround. He said if he has no deal by camp, then they just won't be talking about it. What kind of sign does that does that show his team? And does that also show that the Oakland Raiders are really trying to get into win-now mentality while they're still in Oakland? Well, I have a couple things here. You know, look – these quarterback contracts are the easier ones to do because mm-hmm. the, the numbers are put right out there. I mean, you know, all, you see it pretty clearly. You can see Where the scale. You, yeah. you can see the scale. A lot of this comes down to cash flow. It comes down to guaranteed money. It comes down to a couple other things than, than average per year. And, I mean, look, the hardest thing is because Kirk Cousins keeps getting his franchise number, those average goes up. So you're sitting there saying, well, he's better than Kirk Cousins. He's making 24, you, you know, and you see some ridiculous contracts. The Mike Lennon deal comes through. So I, I think the Raiders will get this done. I think it's really going to come down to cash flow. I think it's going to come down to how they structure the deal more than what the average per year of the deal is. And that usually gets done. And I think it will get done. I mean, look, the Raiders the Raiders know where they are and what, what they want to be. Derek Carr's their guy. He's the guy that they want to be their quarterback. I think they'll get it done, and I think a lot of it is posturing right now. And I think Carr's right. Look, go through the summer. If they can't get it done, they'll get it done the offseason because it's really just going to come down to structure. Do you think Carr deserves to be, you know, I mean, should he be high? I mean, Andrew Luck is obviously the highest-paid player in football, and so that means he's the highest-paid quarterback. Do you think Derek Carr deserves to be in that Andrew Luck territory of, uh, of contracts, or is that something that let him, do, let him do one year, make sure he's durable, and then, and then give him that big deal? I think there's a way to do that deal. I think you can give him Andrew Luck's contract, you can give him that deal, and then you could have ways where you can de-escalate or escalate the contract. I think there's a thousand ways to do it. I think you have to reach a consensus on what the number is, and once you do that, then I think you can really you can move forward. But until you do that, you know, look, the guy's going to get it. I mean, quarterbacks, it's not a question of whether they deserve it or not. It's a question of whether they're healthy and able to play. Then they'll get the money because there's so few of them. It's the law of supply and demand. Yep. Well, the uh, the market's still open. Jay Cutler's still out there. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe we'll have bigger stories uh, and bigger fish to fry down the road. Lombardi, thanks a lot. This has been a great, uh, great edition of GM Street. All right, Tate. Thanks for all your help. Talk to you next week. Next week we'll have one too, Tate. Yep, we'll be back. GM Street. We're back weekly next week. Let's do it. All right, buddy. Thanks.